from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 35 for January the 10th, 2023. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by Julia Alexander, Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics. Julia, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Jason. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Pretty good. My voice is not perfect, so apologies to listeners out there when I start sounding like this at the end. <laughs> uh, but doing pretty good. How are you? You know what? I can't complain. Yep. I have to tell you, I've become a mechanical keyboard person. Oh, excellent. Welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank Welcome. you. But now I bring it to my office, so I think the people around me are yeah, not as happy. Yeah, there is an etiquette problem. See, I work in a garage where uh, cats <laughs> and dog are not bothered by the clicky clicks, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. But yeah, that's. I used to have a podcasting keyboard, although now I, I just type try to type quietly on my keyboard and I don't care. <laughs> Uh, well, what keyboard did you get? You know what? I, I can't remember the name of it, but it, it's a nice keyboard. It was like, I didn't have to build it. It like came assembled and it was yeah, yeah, yeah. on sale on Amazon for $80 and it had like solid reviews on the actual like mechanical keyboard websites. They were like, this is a great starter keyboard. Great. Perfect. So I got it. It's phenomenal. It looks pretty. I'm happy with it. It's nice. got um brown keys. Oh yeah. Cherry Brown. I, uh, I am a big Cherry Brown Boy, people, sorry, everybody. This is Keyboard Nerdery <laughs> Corner that's happened here. But I uh, I also use the Cherry Brown switches, and I love them, the brown switches. And I discovered that, um, oh, who is, it, who is it at The Verge who has the same keyboard as me? Is he, is he British? Is it, is it uh, John, John Porter? No, it's... Dan Seifert? It's Dan Seifert. That's who it is. Yeah, yeah Dan... Yep. Um, has exactly the same keyboard as I do. He has he has the Q1 uh, from Keychron. Mine was put together by Mike Hurley for me um, on a podcast, uh, and with the uh, the switches that are from uh, from Severance, the Apple TV nice. Plus show. So it's we are both able to, uh, uh, I guess, analyze the scary numbers whenever they appear on our screen. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Anyway, that is our unexpected segment. Keyboard corner. Uh, moving on to actual things. Uh, Glass Onion finally came out for streamers December 23rd instead of just in that limited theatrical run. Uh, I watched it with my family on Christmas night. We had a great time. Uh, did you see it? I yeah, I actually saw it the week it ran in theaters and then I watched it again oh. on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Yeah, nice. I was one of those people that did the the. I know this was a huge concern amongst some analysts, but I watched it two times, and I actually threw it on for a third time a couple of days ago, and then fell asleep halfway through. Oh, that's okay because you know what happens. Yeah, yeah exactly. You I was just like, it. I need comfort. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, it, it's it's good. The question, as you put it in a piece on Puck dot News, is, um, what. You know, let's analyze it from Netflix's perspective. And it's kind of hard to tell, although we do know that about 209 million hours uh, of Glass Onion were streamed between December 23rd and January 1st, which is pretty good. It got stronger in the second week. We haven't seen the results from week three yet. Um, But you in your piece at Puck, you pointed out a few things, which is um, first off, it's expensive. So does it justify the cost that they paid for it? Uh, And. A fascinating little detail that you pointed out, which I think I I wanted to at least mention, which is Knives Out, the original, is not on Netflix, which is one of those things that's like, I find that fascinating that that you basically can only get it by going and renting it or buying it somewhere. 
Um, it's not on a streaming service anywhere. And it does seem like you would think that whoever owns Knives Out would and Netflix would come to some sort of terms that it would be beneficial for it to be on their service. But that that didn't happen, which is kind of a kind of a bummer because you, mm-hmm. you you talk a lot about that kind of magnifier effect of mm-hmm. of having the these things that are connected together even if they're not in a connected universe but just like related by actor or in this case literally it's the sequel to this other movie <laughs> and yet it's not on netflix which is i mean i'm reminded that like apple apple tv plus which does not have a catalog right they just have their own stuff they don't have they don't go buy old stuff but they do buy old stuff when it's related to a thing that they're putting on their service for a limited time they will collect up i feel like it's it's your philosophy at work which is let's let's build some other movies around this movie we're releasing it's a denzel washington movie or it's a will smith movie we will build some movies from their catalog and just make them available as part of the service because people are going to be in that mood and yet here knives out not on netflix what? Yeah, at least domestically. It's on Netflix in like six countries. <laughs> like it's it, it's mm. so random. If you go to like, you know, one of those websites that's like, where can I watch this? Um, Like just watch is difficult because it goes by country you're in. So you have to go by country search. Um, I think I, I looked into it. And it was like six countries. It was like Germany had it. Right. So Very like, limited. Okay. Not in the yeah. US for sure. No. So uh, so how how did you how do you think? It did. If you balance the fact that it was talked about a lot, people really liked it, uh, just highly praised. The numbers seem like they're actually going to be pretty good. Um, and, you know, it's not a one size fits all strategy for Netflix. They can they, they, they need their prestige things and their popular things and their uh, cheap things that drive a lot of traffic. So do, do you think this is going to be viewed internally at Netflix as a as a success? It's a really interesting question because there's no doubt that Netflix overpaid for this. There's no doubt in my mind. There's no doubt in uh, the CEO of Lionsgate's mind. They were the ones who had the original Knives Out and who lost out in the bid to Netflix for it. There's no doubt in any analyst's mind that Netflix vastly overpaid for this one and the next title, right? We're talking about $450 million for two Knives Out sequels, which doesn't include, as Jason just pointed out, the original Knives Out. Out on Netflix globally, um, which I have heard different things about about how it got there, and I won't um, get into it because uh, Lionsgate is a client, mm. uh, and so I'm just not going to comment on uh, client stuff. But it, it's it's a loss for Netflix not have that title. So acknowledging that it's overpriced, it's funny because when the first week numbers came out, right? Netflix said it was 82.1 million hours had been viewed so about 36 37 38 million household views right and everyone or not everyone but a number of people pointed out that it was relatively low like they were expecting it to kind of come in above gray man they're expecting it to come in above old guard they were expecting it to come in above um red notice about adam project and it didn't like it kind of came in underneath that so there was this there was this perception that this was not going to be a successful film for Netflix. But, you know, the irony with Netflix is that unlike traditional theatrical releases where the opening box office is 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 super strong, that's why you, we look at those numbers very closely, and then the second week drop-off is relatively steep, going anywhere from 40% to even 70%, 75% in, in recent years, even including for Marvel titles, where you see movies like 
Thor um, uh, Love and Thunder had a, I think, 68% drop. You know, a lot of the Marvel Phase 4 movies are seeing 65% plus drops week after week, which is significantly higher than they used to be. Netflix actually has the opposite thing, where Netflix's second week tends to be much stronger, and then even the third week tends to be strong, and then it really starts falling off by the fourth, fifth, and sixth week, and by the seventh week, most Netflix films are kind of no longer generating the type of viewership or demand that you would necessarily equate with the Netflix film. Now, that is on par with theatrical, right? If we go about theatrical releases by the seventh or eighth week, those movies are not making a ton of money in theaters. This is why all the studios have really pushed back and said, we think a 45-day release is great. As I've said on this podcast before, 98% of films, excuse me, 90% of films make 98% of their revenue within the first 30 to 40 days. So being in theaters for 45 days is kind of great. Here's where the big issue is for Netflix, right? So Knives Out, Glass Onion, as it stands, will probably be one of the most watched movies on Netflix. It'll certainly crack the, crack the top five. And that's kind of what it needed to do to be a success for Netflix. It's also the type of quality film that Netflix films don't have associated with, right? Netflix films, like Netflix has really radicalized and revolutionized television. I don't think anyone would question that. But the film side has really struggled. And this is something that Scott Stuber, who's the head of film, is is really trying to figure out, which is we want these big bets that are blockbusters but are also really beloved. He thinks – he told Bloomberg recently that he has to get to a point where – 80, 90, 100 million households are watching a film to even compare that to like an $800 million universal film in theaters, right? So that kind of idea of like, how do you translate that to success? Knives Out is kind of there. So there's this idea that, you know, by all of Netflix's metrics, it is successful. But here's the issue. And this is something that we're going to be talking a lot about in this coming year, because this is going to be the year, and we'll get into this in a little mm-hmm. bit, of of all these companies beginning to window out their exclusive titles. And when you look at that Knives Out trajectory, again, with that Netflix film trajectory, where second, third, fourth week, it kind of picks up, right? And then by sixth, seventh week really falls off, and then there's really little to no demand. If we think about that in terms of theatrical, people listening at home will already know this. What happens traditionally after movie? movie is done in theaters it goes on to digital or blu-ray or dvd after it goes on to blu-ray dvd or digital what does it do it goes to a streaming service after a streaming service or before a streaming service where does it go it goes to an hbo or a sci-fi or a tnt there are three different monetization windows to four potential monetization windows that happen to create enough revenue to kind of support the theatrical release movies didn't have to make a billion dollars in theaters because even if they made 400, 500 million in theaters and broke even, they could make another billion in the kind of home market and then the pay one and pay two window. This is a huge issue that has gone away, especially for Netflix, where the company is not committing to theatrical, is is spending, you know, $225 million on one title and is not going to see that pay one window, pay two window exist. So sure, the title technically does on par with a theatrical release when we look at the level of household views, right? So if we equate that 100 million, 120 million, you know, 220 million to kind of uh, an $800 million movie, this is something, by the way, that Ted Sarandos does. And I disagree with him that the idea that they're making the culturally equivalent billion dollar movies, like there's a difference between something that you watch on Netflix and something that you go to theaters for. Um, And people would go to theaters for Knives Out. It was a huge loss for them. But most of their films... Red Notice is a really hard sell for people in theaters. Don't look up so hard sell for people in theaters, but those movies are very successful on Netflix. So you have this moment hitting Netflix where like Knives Out by all of its metrics, successful. 
Knives Out, Glass Onion, by any other metric, by any other studio in the entertainment industry, not super successful because it's missing out on this gaping monetization window. And that's becoming the bigger concern. And it will be a huge concern for Netflix. Right, because right now Netflix is viewing this, and we talked about this a couple episodes ago, uh, about the reluctance to keep it in theaters. Is It's not the game Netflix is playing. Now, the question is, at some point, <laughs> will they need to say, okay, that is a game we're playing. But right now, that's that's not the game they're playing. And so they're not trying to get all that revenue in theaters. They want it to just be in the, in the at Netflix. And and uh, it's done pretty well there. I, I wanted to – I have one correction – Knives Out, the original, is in, on Netflix in 41 countries, but that's less than half of Netflix's countries, and they're mostly smaller markets. Um, not entirely. It's in Brazil. Uh, it's in Chile. Um, it's in a bunch oh, so of... so they added new ones. They bunch, must have just signed that. Yeah, this is... this is. I'm looking at Netflix Top 10, which has not yet been updated for this past week as we record this. Um, you'll also see it. It's in Austria and Germany and France mm-hmm. and the UK. So it's in, it's in kind of core Europe, Ireland, Italy, Hungary, Greece, Germany. Uh, and it's in parts of Asia. And it's in uh, Australia. But it is uh, not North America, which is very interesting. And so, so as a as a uh, North American-centric podcast, it, it, it sticks out like a sore thumb that they didn't make that deal. Uh, but I will say, you can't talk about it because they're a client of yours, but I will say, if you're Lionsgate, you know demand for Knives Out is going to go up in America, in North America, in any any region where it's not on Netflix when Glass Onion comes out. So there's a baseline of revenue that you're going to just generate from interest in your product. So Netflix, to get it on their service, needs to Mm-hmm. make it worth their while right and that's yeah. the push and pull there is is the number that would make it worth their while more than netflix is willing to spend and looking at what happened uh it, for north america it seems like the answer is yes anyway but you know because the beauty of it is if you if you just have knives out and they're coming out with a huge sequel you stand to make money because people will seek it out maybe not as much money but, but i mean that's but that's the calculation is will we make yes. more money by licensing this to netflix or will we make more money just letting it sit here and be for rent or sale on itunes right like that's the choice exactly and it, and it's it's interesting thank you for pointing that out it's interesting that they've added more countries which i imagine if you're netflix you're seeing the success of this film you're seeing it pick up in its second week and you're going okay like we'll we'll just go back to the table for the new year like we will We'll have that conversation. Right. Um, but to your point, to your excellent point, missing out on the domestic market is still because it's, you know, it's 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 the type of film that uh, actually if you look at the original Knives Out. Most films tend to make majority of their revenue internationally, right? Just from a numbers game, that makes sense. Uh, D- Knives Out was actually 52 percent domestic, 48 percent international. So it's wildly successful in the north american market compared to other regions so not having the knives out in the in in this market is kind of a struggle for for netflix and lionsgate i imagine yeah very interesting um all right let us move on and talk about uh the ever-growing and changing business of netflix a little more netflix (laughs) here um we love uh, netflix on this pod 
I mean, it's Netflix, right? Like you, you can't, how do you not talk about Netflix? One of the great things about expanding my, my purview from the Apple stuff on the Upgrade podcast is it's like, oh, Netflix, right? Uh, and we, Tim and I talked about it on TV Talk Machine a, a lot, but like it's fun to be back in it, especially when their business model is being examined and changed right before our eyes. It, it happened last year and it's happening, continual, continuing to happen this year. Um, by the end of 22, at the end of 22, you pointed out, um, in, in another puck piece that uh that they added nike branded fitness videos to netflix which is really interesting and you think about that that like wait a second so they want to be your place you go when you work out not just when you're watching a movie or a tv show for entertainment uh or like while you're on your exercise bike or something they want to actually have uh nike branded fitness workouts on netflix and i'll point out that also netflix began releasing games last year there are a bunch of games that you Mm -hmm. can get that are you you basically have to get them from your your app store and then you put in your netflix login and then they unlock and you play them which is also kind of wild uh and and these are examples of netflix saying basically look we want to i mean what you said is if netflix can be top of mind when people want a new show or an old movie when they work out multiplayer and social gaming the service becomes more than just a habit it becomes the hub for entertainment and lifestyle that spans the entire day and an answer to reed hastings famous declaration in 2017 that netflix's only true competitor i love this is sleep So yeah, that Netflix everywhere six years for on. everything. Every I, yeah, I know. How is it? How is it possible? It's been six <laughs> years since that. But um, but really interesting, right? Where they where they're like, well, what what else? What other worlds are there for us to conquer at this point, right? And the answer is, we're going to do gaming. We're going to do fitness, and you know who knows what else. But it, it's fascinating to see them uh, embrace this idea that they need to extend who they are because they've sort of got their they've got their market. I mean, it's competitive, but like they're they're doing really well, and they have you know we've talked about their issues, but like Netflix is number one right but so when you're number one you start to say well where else could we compete what how do we take our power and we leverage it and push it even further out there and build an ecosystem right build an ecosystem like amazon and apple have already done exactly and so it's it's a really interesting conversation because i i had this debate with some fellow analysts who said i pointed out i thought that this was a great deal and something that netflix should have done years ago and a bunch of analysts pointed out who i respect and who they respect me a very respectful conversation they were like i don't think it's that big of a deal i don't think it's gonna really help them and i said if they were investing in creating original fitness content i would argue that it's a dumb move i would argue that like you like there's so many trainers at this point across youtube across peloton across apple like trying to create a new trainer and a new program that is going to be better than those especially when they're not tied into a piece of hardware the way that amazon excuse me apple or peloton are and like really kind of incentivize those consumers to then use the software that's a really hard sell and it's a hard sell when youtube exists and tiktok exists and and twitch exists and people go and work out with those trainers who are already popular I think Netflix partnering with Nike is smart. I think Nike, you take 30 hours of content that is hidden behind a paywall. You bring it to Netflix. You have this thing where people are already paying for Netflix. And so it's a low cost, relatively low lift ability to say, hey, if we can get people to open the app more often, if we can, Jason, and I've talked about this all the time on this podcast. It's really hard, especially when there's a ton of competition to get people to open that app as often as they once were when you were the only app. 
And so if they're opening it more, if they're spending more time with it, if they're watching a video and then they're cooling down and they put on, I don't know, Too Hot to Handle, or they put on Wednesday, or they put on something that they're like, oh, you know what, I forgot I wanted to watch this while they're at home. Netflix kind of wins on that, right? Netflix gets the increased engagement. They get that increased perceived value out of it. Um, And it's interesting that it's happening now because there's this interesting debate happening. There's a a report that Amazon is looking to spin off its sports business. And the argument from a lot of analysts is you would that Amazon would have hit its kind of penetration rate domestically. And so they're not really going to add to the bundle as much and sports rights are very expensive. So how do you better monetize your sports? You move into a separate app. It's a little bit more expensive and you draw people there who are really interested in sports. The counter argument, and this is why how it relates to Netflix, the counter argument is that by that, to do that, you have to invest, you know, three, four, five billion dollars more into supplementary content to keep that sports app alive and healthy and valuable, like you look at ESPN Plus, which is also, you know, growing, but really struggling to find its base. Um, you have to have way more sports on there. You have to invest in having more rights. It becomes a really difficult thing to do. Building something from the grounds up on the back of a preconceived notion of what already exists is much more difficult than adding perceived value by partnering with the leader in that space. And so when you look at Netflix and Nike, It is the quintessential definition of bringing together two different services that don't necessarily feel like they should work, but they do. You know, games is a part of that as well. And I think the company I always like to compare Netflix to because it's a company whose strategy I'm obsessed with. I think it's super smart. I think they've they've really figured a big portion of it out is the New York Times. Well, the New York Times has gone from a news organization to a tech lifestyle product that also does news, which is probably heartbreaking to New York Times reporters and like Dean, who's their, who's their head of the New York Times, but is really great from a subscriber standpoint. I think I put in the puck piece in the same period, about two and a half years, same period that the New York Times has gained four million subscribers. The Washington Post has lost three and a half million Like it's and the game that it wasn't necessarily just because of news. It wasn't like, you know, they were getting Donald Trump scoops that the Washington Post wasn't when Donald Trump was out of office. It was was because they bought Wordle. It was cooking and games in the athletic. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they were like, we're building up this thing and people come to it. And then they also it subsidizes our news with if you're Netflix, you need something to increase that engagement, something that, you know, people will see. Uh, continued value and the idea of a Nike branded thing, the you know this idea that you're building out something that that takes a part of their day, morning, middle of the day, night, and then you become this thing that when you raise prices, people feel less. I mean, they're still going to grunt and complain because that's what that makes sense. We don't want to pay more for what we're already paying, but they'll stick with you. That churn rate remains low, and the most important and terrifying thing if you are working in streaming right now is that churn rates are increasing subscriber growth is slowing and your mar- your profit your profit margin is almost non-existent if it if you are making any profit at all and so that terrifying thing of how do we stop people from canceling you have to find it outside of content which has hit a saturation point which just means that every streaming service is making somewhat decent quality content. It's not like Netflix is really standing out from Disney Plus or whatever. You know, HBO has has HBO, but Big Bang Theory draws more viewers than uh, uh, Succession does. And so all that together, when you think about it, what do you do? You innovate by going beyond that saturation point, which in my opinion is games, is lifestyle. For something like Netflix, 
There's probably a little bit in there, too, with live experiences, if they can really figure it out. Podcasting used to be, but I don't think so. So, yeah, I think it's smart. I ended that puck piece by saying, why didn't they do it sooner? And I I still feel that way. All right. uh, Everybody get fit on Netflix if you want to. (laughs) It's time. You can do it. All right. So it's first episode of the new year, and you wrote a couple pieces at Puck where you did the classic columnist thing. Looking back, looking forward. Uh, what lessons did we learn from last year? What what are our predictions for the key issues this year? I wanted to run through those with you and just get your your uh, uh, you know little take, little description of what uh, what it, what you meant, what it means, how we can learn, how we can move forward. Let's start with your four lessons, and then I want to see if Jason agrees oh. or disagrees. I want okay. to see if he's like all actually right. that's wrong. All right. Uh, <laughs> lesson number one: the calendar doesn't matter. Give us new stuff all the time. Yeah, the way that I phrase this, which uh, listeners will know, I say it on the podcast a lot, is that seasonality is dead. Mm-hmm. The idea there, – there was a preconceived notion and it's an antiquated notion that you have to perform under the rules of a supposed calendar, right? So you have your summer blockbuster. You have your fall television. You have your your, your marquee film for the Oscar season. There's all this – there's a war, there's festival season, right? Like all none of it matters. Like it, it, in the same way that I have to sometimes tell clients that your brand does not matter if you are going to license to something like Netflix because it automatically becomes a Netflix show to whoever is watching it. And if you don't care about brand and you're willing to just sell at a higher price, that's great. But if you care about brand, that's something I would keep in mind. Um, The idea that you're like, we're going to be part of the fall season debut when Lanier is basically dead. The idea that we're going to be part of summer blockbuster when the biggest blockbusters now come out in like March and April. Like, Mm. it's just you have to keep demand all year round and you in order to prevent churn, in order to keep people engaged, in order to then raise prices, which they have to do in order to generate more uh, revenue so they can buy more content. So yeah, seasonality, dead. Agree yeah. or disagree? I agree. Um, Tim <laughs> Goodman and I used to talk back on the TVTM about this, about how it was inevitable that television was going to need to abandon its concept of seasonality, especially American television with the idea that you basically take the summer off, uh, how you program films and TV based on these little slots. And it's like, it's only these movies only happen this time of year. And there's still some, I mean, there's still some of that, like you're going to get horror movies early in the year and around Halloween. That's just sort of how it goes. The horror movies found a a way to go early in the year because all the Oscar bait was out before the end of the year. And then there was a hole where you didn't want to release. Although even that there are Oscar winners that get released early in the year and they win the Oscars. It doesn't matter. But TV, especially this idea that you have this seasonality that starts in the fall and ends in the late spring uh, and everybody's running 22 episodes. And like we talked about that for years and then you turn around and over a very short amount of time, it's just over. Like it's gone. Everything is well, it's everything everywhere all at once, I'll say. How about that for 2022? Um, okay, number two lesson. Oh, boy. Debt kills. Hello, Warner Brothers Discovery. There's – I was having this conversation um, with a an executive, and we were talking about the promise of streaming, something that this person and I still very heavily believe in. We were talking about why it felt like it was going away and and the, you know, Tildiar is that reality set in, but it wasn't just that reality set in. It was that reality, forced reality set in. And this idea that 
in order to do all the things you want to do, right? When you acquire a company or when you're investing this amount of money, like you're really excited about the future. The issue, and the issue is when you take on a level of debt that it becomes your primary focus. Now, debt is not inherently bad, right? You can leverage debt. Like, like there's, it's not a horrible thing to have, especially actually in the in the market like this. If you can, if if you've got strong cash flow and your debt is manageable, it's actually not a bad thing to have on hand. When you have the level of debt that Warner Brothers Discovery does, when you have the level of debt that it will come out of potential future acquisitions, if it's not, you know, Comcast buying a, a, an AMC or whatever it might be, right? That has to become the principal focus. Your principal focus is paying down that debt, looking at the interest rate. And when that is your goal, everything that you want to do, everything that you promise the shareholders when you do that acquisition or when you decide to pivot to that level of investment in a new product or new area, everything that you promise consumers does not happen. Because the only thing that matters is what the interest rate is at the bank and how much money you have left on your debt and, and how that affects your EBITDA. That, that is it. And so if you're in that position, especially right now at this pivotal moment, that will kill you. Like that will be the thing where people are they are expressing more negative sentiment towards your business. They are more concerned about the product where the product starts to kind of feel like it's flailing because you're cutting budget elsewhere. You know, you're losing projects to other to other services because the whole thing is what well, we need to pay down this debt, which is not brain surgery, right? We we all, I mean, we all have, there's, there's personal debt, which everyone can kind of understand. But when you're at a company at this level and your whole thing is we want to be a key player in the future, but that bridge that we're trying to cross is like rapidly going up in flames and we're really just trying to get across the other side. It's hard to say, well, look at around us, look how beautiful it is. What if we just managed to take this piece and put it over there and invest? And I think it's heartbreaking. I, for me, it's like, it's it's a thing that is unfortunately a big part of business and it has been over the last few years as acquisitions have really revved up. But or I think we're beginning to see the effect yeah. of that now with some companies. Agree. This was an easy one to agree with. Yeah, this the <laughs> idea that that it's not just your business and it's not just your business model, but it's the terms with which your business was acquired that can determine your fate, which is yeah. unfortunate. I mean, I want to I want to make like a sports analogy, although there's some in in some sports that's also true that like who owns you matters mm-hmm. um, because who owns you always matters. But the idea that you could be something like HBO Max and have a good launch, a good branding, uh, a, a good ac- acquisition strategy, not sustainable, but they were in an era where it wasn't sustainable and get to a point where you should be doing what Netflix is doing, which is pulling in. Uh, yeah, you're going to dump some stuff. You're going to reduce costs. But like you, you made the quantum leap and now it's time to get into sort of like cruise mode uh, where you can make money and take advantage of the fact that you've built this service. Mm-hmm. And yet, because AT&T wanted to uh, unload them and they made this deal to merge them with Discovery, all of that is basically, it's not irrelevant, but it's so devalued because in the end, the debt from the deal is the thing that's going to dictate everything they do. And they're basically going to give back huge amounts of what they invested to do because of the debt. And if yeah. they had made a different deal or had stayed inside AT&T, that debt would not be the thing that overrides 
uh, all the good things that were done to get to that point. It's it's unfortunate, but like literally, uh, companies can get killed by bad deals. That's the bottom yes. line, and that's I know that's not for people viewing this from a, a financial perspective. That's not surprising, but it, it, from an entertainment industry perspective, it's one of those things where you're we're sitting on the sidelines going, "Oh, I like what they did there," and then there's a deal, and you're like, "Well, forget it. It doesn't matter now." <laughs> Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, number three, forget subscribers. Revenue is king. I can make a joke here about how they've already forgotten their subscribers. <laughs> it's not funny, but uh, it is in line with the Twitter discourse. Um, yeah. So, I mean, again, listeners have heard this on the podcast. It, we're, Everything has changed, right? Three years ago, two years ago, all that mattered, all that Wall Street cared about was you're adding subscribers. And so a lot of companies found ways to do this, right? Netflix invested $17 billion into content and brought in subscribers that way. Disney created a bundle and inflated their subscription numbers a little bit, uh, you know, obviously doing very well as a company, but that was the thing that they did. AT&T, when they owned HBO Max counted 10 million subscribers who were not actually activated as part of their subscriber count. So they could do all these things. And Wall Street was kind of okay with it. They were like, oh, well, look, it's growing. There's obvious interest. And Linear was declining. And so they're like, this is, we're seeing it. We're seeing this moment happen. Then Wall Street kind of woke up in a way that a lot of analysts had talked about years prior. Uh, one of my favorites, a guy named Entertainment Strategy Guy, uh, he, he talks about this all. He talked about this for years beforehand and said, these companies are not making money they're not making huge amounts of money netflix's free cash flow is all over the place and it was like up at like to two billion at one point then it was like down a billion like it, it was all in the span of like a year and a half it's all over the place and so wall street said cool you got to show us that you're making money on this your 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 profit you're losing on the linear side if they have linear comp if they have linear bases and that profit margin is phenomenal you've got no profit margin on streaming there's no profit at all for a lot of these companies you're bleeding money as we saw with disney so what is the actual business venture you're seeing saturation already in the most profitable market which is the united states and canada we don't actually know if the global rollout is going to generate the average revenue per user that you really need uh, and, and we're concerned about what this means for your bottom line and so that is why we are about to see what we're about to see this year. That's why you're about to see a lot of these companies offload content and look into windowing. It's why you're going to see them order, not necessarily spend less, but order less. They will kind of focus on shows and films that they think can actually generate revenue. And, and by that, they mean bringing in customers and bettering the slate so that way their retention is higher. No one has the answer for it. If anyone had the answer, they would be doing phenomenally well. And absolutely no one is. Uh, and th- But that's what happened. It's it's Your subscriber count doesn't matter if you're not making money on those subscribers. I think a great example is when we look at Disney Plus and we look at Disney Plus Hotstar. And you've got 45, 46 million subscribers there but that those subscribers are not making you anything right like compared to the rest of the world where you've got you know you've got 47 48 million subscribers in the united states and canada and that's where the bulk of your revenue is coming in from and so when we talk about subscriber numbers we just have to keep in mind that that is not the same thing as the type of revenue that you got for the per customer basis and that how that affected your carriage licensing fees and and your affiliate fees on cable like 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 the actual base model for strong revenue in television and the economics that worked with syndication and, and the way that everything worked 10 15 years ago is not being replicated in streaming, has not been replicated, that everyone was following a model by one company that was had effectively monopolized the industry. So there was no real competition and therefore no great data to actually showcase 
whether or not this would work once you introduce competition and saturation levels. And so now, understandably and 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 earnestly and rightfully so, Wall Street and everyone around them is going, okay, show us your revenue. What Are you actually making money? So subscribers out, making money in. <laughs> uh agree right like i mean and this is tied to number two as well but like we've the net that moment that we talked about that moment when netflix kind of went off the cliff and or like wiley coyote like looked down <laughs> <laughs> and everything changed and you know i could argue it was an overreaction but i suspect what truly was happening is that there were a lot of financial people involved in all these companies that were like guys we can't keep spending money like this it's like yeah. no, no no we have to go into debt now we have to lose money now because it's a land rush like, okay. And then that Netflix moment was the moment where they all leaned forward simultaneously and said, now we need to not do this anymore. And so the whole industry shifts gears. And that's the world we live in now, right? The land rush, is it over? I, I mean, I would argue that it's not, and there's still a lot of opportunity there. But the land rush with no thought to how much money it was costing, that is over, right? That that part yeah. is over. Yeah. Um. I, 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 can I disagree a little on forget subscribers? I know that that's just sort of a pithy phrase there, Please. but like subscribers, Please. subscribers do matter, right? It's not like they're not worried about churn and they're not worried about uh, subscriber acquisition, but certainly the subscribers, it's like subscribers matter to a point, <laughs> but, but only to a point in the world we're in now, I'd say, but you know, really I'm just splitting hairs. I agree. I also think there's a, a moment happening on Twitter where I want – it's 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 interesting and, and Jason, I can get into this next time. But it, it, it's this very fun moment of people feeling like I am not getting what I was promised and I think it's a great um, look at how short memory is, which is not to say right. that people's feelings are invalid. They're very valid because sure. this is what Netflix promised. This is what the streaming boom did promise. But – 10 years ago, the, the, the reason all these shows are being canceled and everyone's really upset about it is because you're getting first full-length first seasons. 10, 15 years ago, you would have had 30 shows premiere in September and three of those shows would have made it. You might have gotten six episodes out of some of those shows, but that was it. And they canceled it because they realized they didn't make any money. The advertisers weren't interested. Nobody was showing up. That's what we called pilot season. Pilot season has gone away. And in turn, because the economics of streaming do not allow for pilots, they have to make first, they have to make full length seasons. So when things get canceled, people are like, nothing gets a second season. And I'm telling you that those shows would not have gotten third episodes. And like, it's really hard to hear and it's really hard to understand and it's also a, a, a it doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense from a financial standpoint like by any means but that that is what has happened so when we say i also want to say you like like we matter our opinions do matter as, as subscribers and like we have we are be, we are watching the promise we are watching what we were promised being taken away from us in real time and, and it's a very hard thing to kind of contend with because that promise was very real and now the reality of television is setting in and the reality of television today is very much the reality of what television was a decade ago like right. it, that that that's just the truth yeah it's absolutely true i i used to do a website where we did a deadpool every year where it was picked yeah. the show to get canceled first and like it is we sh there was that brief time when netflix didn't cancel shows right and then there was that moment where netflix canceled the show and everybody gasped i was like what netflix canceled the show and it's like well 
reality is reasserting itself. That's it was Sense8. Do you remember Sense8 was the first big uh, when Sense8. people were like, whoa. And Netflix was like, we're paying hundred like twenty million dollars a season for this. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Exactly. All right. Uh last lesson of twenty twenty two. The future is international. The future is international. So this should also be uh unsurprising. The the argument I made in uh Puck which is also kind of played into the prediction, which I don't know if we're going to have time to get into because Jason has a sports corner on our, on our I list. Know, I, really I know, it's, I know. It's love, hanging right out there. And I just want to get in a sports corner. But um, what I will say on this last thing is I'll combine it with my prediction. My, I predicted that you would kind of see a big show come out of India. But I think I think we saw RRR do really well from a film standpoint. There are shows like Marjapur on Amazon that does really well. We just haven't seen an Indian show break through the way that like Squid Game or like uh, Alice in Borderland or like South Korean and Japanese shows do. But I think we are seeing more of that happen uh, at a more consistent rate. I think Netflix's focus on bringing international content to the U.S. and and really helping with the discovery in that will help. I think the fact that younger audiences are much more inclined to watch international television because they kind of are growing up with it and they're much more inclined to watch stuff with subtitles or to watch dub versions of stuff means that we're getting to a point. Also, you think about the fact that I think think Indian uh, uh, immigrants to the United States make up like seven or eight percent of total immigrants i i remember as of like 2020 i have to double check that but i think it was around there right it's 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 a massive audience and i think we are on the precipice of seeing a huge indian show kind of debut globally but when i say the the future is international i just mean the focus on u.s and the focus on entertainment having to kind of come from the u.s to really find a global audience is dissipating before our eyes and it's because the u.s was the you know our number one or not number one but one of our top exports globally was entertainment like no one made television the way we made television no one made film the way we we made film like that was just true it's not even like a nationalistic standpoint it's like we were just good at we invested in it when others weren't and now you've got massive film and television communities coming out of Brazil, coming out of India, coming out of South Korea, coming out of Japan. And I think you'll start to see a lot more of those shows come into the States as opposed to just what we put out into the world. And so, yeah, I think I think that's the, the future is international. And that's not to say that U.S. film and television is going to go away. Like Top Gun Maverick is like one of the biggest films of 2022 and that did well globally. But I do think you'll see a lot more openness and willingness to watch international content domestically, which will then influence what is being watched globally. All right. Uh, let's move on quickly to predictions. Number one. Oh, I agree. Right. Obviously agree. Uh, predictions. Number one, non, non-traditional bundles are coming. We already talked about Netflix with games and with fitness and the idea that uh, we, we have been saying for a while now that uh, Amazon and Apple are playing their own game. Uh, but it's sort of like, well, maybe that's the game that you should be playing. Hmm? Ecosystem, bigger picture, not just not just one thing, um, you know, bundle other stuff in in order to provide value for the customers yeah and also just thinking outside of uh bundling video with video so the when we think about streaming bundles most people will think of disney they think of like paramount with showtime right it's that kind of idea 
the bundles that you're going to see are much more in line with what credit card companies do, where credit card companies work with airlines because they people buy airline tickets on their credit cards. And so they do a lot of stuff that way. Credit cards, uh, telecoms, right, bundling with like the streaming services because they have they, they have 5G it's a whole they, they sell broadband networks uh sorry packages so they're like if you stream on us we will give you this thing to stream uh all those kind of like non-conventional or sorry unconventional bundles uh another great example people don't really think about it right it's like playstation bundled with apple tv plus for six months like that was smart you got uh hulu bundling with spotify like for that smart like all those types of things i think you'll see way more of all right uh number two offloading the catalogs but what we were just talking about, you'll see a lot more titles and not just titles that no one's watching, but titles that uh, think about it this way. Streaming services have already probably made the most amount of money they're going to make on a show that's complete. Right. So if you think about uh, the example I use is Ozark. Think about Ozark. If there's no real spinoff coming out of that and, and they're kind of done with it. The first three seasons of that show, Netflix has made the most amount of money they're going to make on that show. What Netflix can do is find a partner, whether it's a fast partner like Pluto TV or Amazon Freebie, whether it's another streaming partner, whether it's a broadcast partner, and say this title is going to be much more valuable to you so we can make much more meaningful uh, revenue by offloading the first three seasons, whether exclusively or non-exclusively, right. and saying like, here, you know, first two seasons of Stranger Things on a Pluto TV, even if you keep those on the platform somewhat, but you make them available on Pluto, you're going to make a ton of money leading up to the fifth season because Pluto wants that. They want people to come and go and watch it. And so... So that's what you'll see a lot more services do. Right now, the streaming Scrooge is David Zaslav and HBO Max, <laughs> but you're going to see that happen at other platforms. Uh, streaming Scrooge, I love it. Um, number you. three, streamers will push hardware to reduce churn. This is the old cable cable box or yeah. your cellular provider getting you a phone in, in exchange for a contract, that sort yeah, of thing. That, exactly. I mean, and think about the fact, think of how cheap it is. For Amazon, Google, and Roku to produce their their dongles and their boxes, like it it doesn't cost them anything. Apple's a little bit more expensive, and Apple's tough because Apple TV makes up like one point five or like two percent of all viewing. Yeah, but and 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 they they want to be there too. But it's it, Apple's always a tough game because it's like they're not going to sacrifice their price point uh, yeah. of their hardware. Uh, although you can never say never, they weren't going to be a software company. <laughs> now they are. Uh, and I think if you look at Google, Roku, and Amazon, the other thing within those three companies is they want to control the homepage. They want to be the thing where they're, you as Netflix or you as HBO Max are, are working with them because they can then recommend all these different shows and they're, and, and that's how they can increase subscriptions. Uh, that's sort of how those streaming services can increase subscriptions. Amazon, Roku, Google, they can take a portion of that cut. If you sign up, they get 15% of that sign-up fee for like the first year. That's what happens with Apple. And so – that's a big business for them. And the best way to kind of bring them on is to give out that hardware. Like just just hand out the hardware. Be like, hey, you can use this Google TV dongle. Or you can use this Roku box. You know, Roku's getting into televisions now, right? Like they, ha- they had a partnership with TCL. Now they're making their own TVs. Amazon makes their own TVs. Giving those discounted TVs away and locking someone in for a year or two to like a streaming subscription or like locking them into – like it's just – an easy way to control the homepage and then increase the amount of money that you can make through taking a portion of ad inventory and subscription signup fees. All right. And uh, number four, rise of the middlemen. 
very quickly, I would, I'll just say what I said in Puck. The most interesting company to me in 2022 was not Warner Brothers Discovery. It wasn't Netflix. It wasn't Disney. It was Candle Media run by Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, both the former prodigal princes of Disney who were both supposed to be CEO. Neither of them became CEO. They are now running this extremely fascinating company. They bought Moonbug, which makes Cocoa Melon. They bought Reese Witherspoon's company. I think it's Hello Sunshine. Um, they acquired this Israeli production company that creates the show called Foudy. It's really popular on netflix uh they here's the thing streaming services the the ones that want to buy a lot of content they're going to buy less content but they are going to buy the content at a higher price that is more valuable to them that is more in demand because that's what they're trying to just generate the strongest return on their investment the idea of 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 them buying Coco Melon and selling a bunch of or licensing a bunch of Moonbug series to a bunch of different players for a high value while also leaning into the social side of things with YouTube and advertising and then the physical side of things with merchandise puts them in a really great position to kind of be this this middleman this middleman that buys and sells content at extremely high low and then high prices uh well they've overpaid so far i think on some of their deals including Hello Sunshine but they're in a really great position to be this kind of uh, this middleman right? and, and, and cater to all these different services. So I think you'll see more of those come up. Peter Chernin and his group have have a, an arm that they're kind of doing similar things with. And if you have the right people with the right strategy and, and, and the right connections, you're in a pretty good place. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. And of course, we will detail it for you here. You see, that's the beauty of this. Is that we will get to see what actually happens in 2023. It's a beautiful thing. But you know, it's time for the thing that I know you want to do. I know that our podcast editor, Steven, wants to do it too. It's Sports Corner. Sports oh, Corner. Sports Corner is back. <laughs> and it, I've, this has been, it's been waiting in the wings for uh, a month now, but I wanted to uh, talk about this article in the athletic it's excellent speaking of uh it's from late october but it, it, it continues to this day which is that we're getting very perilously close to apple and and mls mm-hmm. um putting their new uh league pass system into place and and there's a lot going on this the athletic story is great if you have access to the athletic i definitely recommend reading it it's the idea of having to scramble to put together a deal that happened fairly late and that where the league and apple are taking over all production of all games of an entire sports league uh it sounds like they're going to be doing it on the fly not all of it's going to be ready at launch among the many things they have to do is that they have to hire talent. My understanding is that they have been working very hard. They have to hire uh, essentially, what is it, 10 broadcast teams, I think, for English language only. Also, they're going to do multilingual, so they have to hire uh, Spanish and French broadcast teams as well. Um, they are working on having more cameras on all matches because apparently a lot of the uh, MLS games were done, you know, some of them were done on the cheap mm-hmm. with very few cameras and Apple wants more cameras. They want this to all look really good. Uh, they have to have the technology to pipe in the local radio broadcast that will fit the picture so that people and they apparently it's going to be at launch. It's just going to be the home broadcasters, but uh, people who want to listen to home, uh, watch a home game and listen to the radio broadcasters will be able to do that, which I think is a really great feature that, that uh, needs to be in more places is uh, for baseball, especially let me watch your video and tune in my home broadcasters. I think that'd be a huge step forward. And in recent days we've seen 
that they've made deals. They've made a deal for a simulcast, which we said they would do for uh, for cable, so that people who don't have Apple's stuff will be able to see some games on cable. But it will still be a simulcast of the Apple broadcast. And I just, uh, you know, this is something to keep an eye on because. I feel like this is like a, a lab for what does Apple want to do with live sports in uh, over time? Uh, what is it like to have a streamer partner with a whole league and build a, build something that is designed to be for streaming? What does yep. that look like? Like there's just it's going to be really interesting to watch, even if you don't care about soccer, or you don't care about MLS soccer. It's going to be really interesting to see how. Uh, how they put it together, and also that athletic story makes it clear. Uh, we're gonna have to keep watching it because it's probably going to be um a work in progress. But like having the ability to like put pick dates and say no, we we're gonna play matches on these dates and these time windows, and and kind of plot it all out, and having the league for the league to have a single partner to make those decisions is also a big deal, right? That like, it's just the league and Apple. They are working together on this whole thing. It's going to be really fascinating to watch. Yeah. This is my favorite thing about this current moment coming up in sports and new streaming media, I guess in general is everybody is trying to redefine sports while also not. Like, I don't know if that makes uh-huh. sense. It's this yeah. idea of like, let's we're learning from broadcast because broadcast has done it well for decades but they also have this new technology if you're apple or amazon you have like other products that are really interesting that you can kind of incorporate into what you're doing um you you have all this new technology at your hands and to your point having one partner and the league gives you a lot of unprecedented kind of freedom to really experiment with what do you think can actually make sports viewing better i was having this conversation with a friend of mine who's worked in sports media for years and he went you don't have you have you watched ESPN lately? Like just watched ESPN. And I said, you know, I watch uh, Sports Center in the morning. And uh and that's really fun, but you know, other than watching games, no not really. And he just went, it's terrible. He's like it's like it's like it's like watching CNN. It's terrible. They have these talking heads come on, and it's yeah. not entertaining, and someone needs to really do something new with it. And I think that's what's really exciting about Apple and Amazon is they can come in. They're not tied to this kind of 24-7 needed like space to fill. And right. they get to do some really ex- exciting things. I will say um, watching Thursday Night Football on Amazon was mostly fine. Uh, I learned a lot about Amazon shows I did not know about. Yep. So that was great. And But I will say a lot of the stuff that they try to do, I wasn't a fan of. I'll give them credit for trying to do it. But they had that weird like uh, version of the soup that they did and and it right. just like i didn't really understand it and they're, i know that they've got a younger audience yeah, but they're trying to do do alternate broadcasts and experiment with that and i like the idea um it is a little weird uh but yeah. I, I like that they're trying it that, yes, that part i like i also think i mean it's funny you mentioned uh you said it's like it's different but it's the same i think that uh nothing says that more than amazon doing a streaming thursday night football broadcast it's like first time exclusively on streaming and al michaels is the play-by-play announcer and that's that is that says it all to me which is like it's new but also not new at all right it's also familiar and safe and i think that you know i think that that probably was to ease the nfl's mind a little bit but also i think that was uh amazon saying like we look (laughs) we just need people to to watch the games we need people like my mom to 
figure out how to get Prime, who is a Prime subscriber, to get Prime Video on her TV, which she didn't know how to do. And I got her a box and we set it up and I, I, you know, but like, that's the whole point is they want, they wanted you to do that. So it's like, let's not make this a really weird thing when they get there. When they get there, we want it to be comforting and like, ah, it's just football. Um, And I, I, so I totally get that while they're exploring the margins. I think they were trying to do like a Manning cast kind of thing, yeah. uh, which I'm a big fan of the Manning cast. Not everything can be the Manning cast, but the idea of an old- But you know what I don't understand about that, Jason? Because I think it's a really good point. And I don't want to cut you off, but I just want to add to that because I think what you just said is exactly right. Why don't they incorporate Twitch? If you're Amazon- why would you not try to do a manning casting but incorporate the Twitch side of things? Right. Like like and just have a thing where you're like, hey, if you want to watch a version of this game that is like even slightly not more entertaining, but you know, not because the actual game itself is traditional football. But when you're actually watching all the stuff afterwards or in between, I would point people to Twitch where you've got maybe younger viewers or like even just like uh retired NFL people who are on Twitch and maybe they could be playing Madden while they're doing it. And the idea of like not incorporating that to me just feels like a wasted use of resources. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. The, the uh, you know, the prime people are like, no, <laughs> we don't want it on Twitch. But <laughs> but right, there's there's lots of possibilities there. And, you know, it's not all going to work, but I want to see mm-hmm. the experiments. You know, the I, I mean... Does the Nickelodeon CBS football broadcast work? I mean, oh my God, I love it. It's different and it's wacky. <laughs> it, it it is. I mean, maybe it does work, but like, uh, but I I think there's a lot of slime. I, yes. I I find it very novel. I'm not sure you could do it every time, but like, <laughs> no, it, it no. is fun. Uh, and I love the Manning cast, but although I love parts of it more than other parts of it, I love the parts of it where it's Peyton and Eli, both yeah. Hall of Fame quarterbacks, sitting there. Uh, talking about what's going on in the game from the perspective of somebody who's very knowledgeable, because it's literally like yeah. I'm sitting on the couch with Peyton and Eli, and they're picking apart what they're viewing. Then they get a guest in there, and they're telling stories and promoting their book, and I'm like, whatever, I don't care Didn't about that. Didn't they have Obama on recently? They did, for a Bears game. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they so that's, and, and a lot of sports, I mean, this is off topic, but like a lot of sports media right now is becoming podcasts, where nothing wrong with podcasts, this is one, but like when you're watching a, a game and a podcast breaks out something is wrong uh and yet a lot of uh espn's baseball uh, coverage is a podcast while a game happens in the background and that's not i'm not as interested in that as i am interested in like i said peyton and eli sitting there going oh you know (laughs) i mean and funny stuff it's not all just like oh they're in a they're in a cover zero here and you know what that means some of it is also like somebody does something stupid and they're like oh my god and you can it's like so humanizing of like professional football players that are shaking their heads it's something dumb that happened i love it i absolutely love it so i want amazon and apple and all of these companies to uh keep experimenting with that because maybe amazon's little overlays this year were not the best uh, but i want them to keep trying because that's that is one of those rare things that streaming does let you do is just make five different versions or three different versions of your own show and like espn does that on their linear because they've got so many channels but streaming it's it's you know it's free other than the extra cost of paying the other people to do it uh, can i just add because i thought you said something really funny about sports media you said sports media is basically podcasting which i think we should make t-shirts of i think that's phenomenal <laughs> we'll just be like the real fm sports media is just podcasting um there was a really interesting this is some not related but kind of related there was an interesting moment it'll only be 30 seconds i was i watched squawk box every morning on cnbc and kramer today was like ranting about something as he does and he looked to david farber and he just went 
He said, you have to say something like, it's a, this is a podcast. And I was like, oh, I guess they do make Squawk Box a podcast. But it was interesting that, like, I'm like, you're the TV guy and you're, you went like, this is a podcast. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, we've warped our minds about what is what. And it was just, sorry, I said to add to that because what you were saying just made me yeah. think of that moment of like cable TV where they're going, this is a podcast. This is how people are consuming this now. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the danger is, is it's, it's also TV. And if you make TV into a podcast, there's a whole rabbit hole to go down of like, why don't we do, um, do these, uh, podcasts with video, video versions, or just us seeing each other with video. And like, one of the reasons is the moment the video comes on, people start doing things with their body language that don't translate to audio. And then you end up having to say things like, you have to say something. This is a podcast. But that, that happened on a TV show on a cable network is amazing. Uh, anyway, uh, one other piece of sports news that I wanted to at least mention because we've been talking about it for a while. NFL Sunday Ticket, the last NFL package that was up for bid, has been sold off. It it did it was Apple and Amazon or Apple and NFL talking for the longest time, and then Amazon came in, and then Google came in. Uh, Apple walked away. The reports are basically that they decided that it didn't make sense. I I actually think that's right. I I'm not sure Sunday Ticket made the best sense for Apple given Apple strategies, and that some deals like the MLS deal uh, make more sense. And it went to YouTube TV, which I, I'm curious what you think about this, Julia. I actually think this makes the most sense for a couple yeah. of reasons. One is. Uh, YouTube TV is a VMPVD, uh, one of my favorite acronyms that I had to learn, which you is... You did that so fast. I'm so impressed. VMPVD. No, I'm really... I've, I've, I've internalized it now. I used to have a little cheat sheet in the document with the name of it because I couldn't remember it, but it's a VMPVD. These are... It's an app that is essentially cable TV, but streamed on an app. And YouTube TV is one, and Hulu Plus Live TV is one, and I, I use Fubo because it's more sports-oriented. Um, YouTube TV... Uh, and Sunday Ticket are a good match because the Sunday Ticket package doesn't include your local channels, right? It includes games out of market, but not in market. And one of the great things about it being a, a VMPVD provider who has Sunday Ticket is they can say, oh, well, that's on your local channel. Guess how you get your local channels? You subscribe to YouTube TV. So they can bundle it. There's the bundles again. They can package those together, or you can buy it separately if you want to, if you have another provider. I think it's a good fit um for people who are wondering about bars bar license the public exhibition license is separate and will probably stay on yeah. direct tv because those they satellite dishes are already yeah. there right so they're gonna yeah. that, that'll stay there but for the rest of us if you if you couldn't get satellite and you wanted sunday ticket you're going to be able to pay google some money pay youtube some money and get it and and yet i think the marriage of of that with a vmpvd youtube tv that has your locals um youtube tv has already said they are working on i don't think they've rolled it out yet but they're working on multi-view which is the thing that fubo has i can put up to four uh live channels in a in a quad box to use nfl uh red zone terminology on a quad box and watch four things at once youtube tv announced that they're doing that too which makes even more sense if they've got sunday ticket and you've got access to all of those games and in fact i would imagine it also means that you can integrate your locals and those games and and mix and match them which is a thing that nobody else is going to be able to do so makes a lot of sense to me I, I'm sure they overpaid for it because the only reason like the NFL was asking for money was is because they were going to get an overpay from somebody. But like if I'm YouTube TV, this is a partnership with the NFL and a way for me to sell people on my app, my interface and ultimately get them to use YouTube TV as my replacement for, for cable or satellite or another VMPVD. What do you think? 
A hundred percent agree. I, I, I like the only thing I'll add to it because I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you is the added benefit of this being YouTube TV and YouTube premium channels is that if you want, if you're, if you're an RSN, you are breathing out a sigh of relief because people can go to YouTube TV and they can have the local networks and then they also have Sunday ticket if they want to add it on top and they have everything covered. If you don't really care about the local stuff, but you want Sunday ticket, I know a few people who are like that, then you can just pick that up from the YouTube, uh, channel section which youtube is trying to grow again that's what i was talking about with that hardware where if like youtube wants to be the homepage and they want to sell channels the way that apple and amazon do this is a great way of really bringing people to it the one thing i'll add is you'll see a lot or you might read a lot of um different takes on whether or not you uh, google overpaid for it of course google overpaid for it but like look if you actually look at you google made what 278 billion dollars in 2022 this is 2.5 billion dollars a year it's less than one percent of google of alphabet's annual revenue uh, to, to acquire it, it's not that big of a deal. Even with the additional marketing expenses, you, you know, you'd have to argue that they'd have to sell, they'd have to get six to seven million people to come in at like three hundred dollars uh, for for Sunday ticket. That's probably not going to happen. But if they can bring more people to YouTube TV in general, they can bring more people to YouTube uh, channels, and they can get even a fraction of that and really increase the amount of people migrating over to that as they cut their cord. That's a strong win for them. And the last thing I'll add is the only issue with Sunday Ticket, this is why I think it's overpriced, is that if you look at how the NFL has actually dispersed games now, Sunday Ticket is far less valuable than it once was. Right. You've got more Saturday games. You've got more games going exclusively to to Amazon with Thursday Night Football. The Monday games are still on ESPN. Some of the Sunday right. games are on Peacock. They do, and like, some, it's just, they do some double headers on Mondays now, too. So they really have the number of games that are happening simultaneously. I know this as a, a former Sunday Ticket and Red Zone viewer and a, a, a current Red Zone viewer that, like, back in 2010 – they would have like the Octobox running, right? Eight games yeah. at once. And that, that very rarely happens now. There are very, there are, are way fewer games happening simultaneously, which, and, and, and also like to your point, um, the, and then you take the locals out. So it's like only what's not on and that is already a diminished pool. Um, it doesn't have a lot of value there, but the, the great things about it are if you love football, and your local team stinks or you don't care about it and you can't watch the good game because your local team is on instead this is a great package for you you can pick the best game and And winner winner in this you know that two winners in this winners in this google i I think they sure i think they were paid but i also don't think it matters to them and honestly winner in this amazon amazon showed restraint for the first time in forever and win win for them yeah and and i think (laughs) I'm going to say it. I know this sounds corny, but football fans win. And the reason they win is that they don't have to put a dish on their roof if they want to see either the good game or every week instead of their local game that is bad or out of market football fans. And I know you are one. Right. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you, could, you could sign up for this and every every Saints game is going to come to you and whether you like it or not. And that's a that's that's the beauty of it. And you don't have to put a satellite dish on your roof. A lot of people can't. Uh, and uh, and and that's great. Um, a loser in this is Andrew Siciliano, who did the custom red zone for DirecTV because they're just going <laughs> to use uh, the Scott Hansen NFL Network uh, version of red zone. But I'm a red zone guy. Uh, I, I, I I really enjoy the kind of like wall of 
sound and images that wash over me on a Sunday on Red Zone where I don't have to care too much about any of it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it's a good it's a good deal. Uh, great for the NFL because they got somebody to overpay. Uh, great for Amazon because and Apple because they showed restraint, which I think is a good thing. Good fit for Google. Good for fans because anybody can get it now. Who knows what it'll cost, but anybody's going to be able to get it regardless of their hardware as long as they have a streamer box, which is basically anything. You yep. get one at Walmart for 20 bucks if you don't have one. I, I did that for my mom. I went to Walmart and I literally bought her a Roku stick for 20 bucks and you can get access to this. So um, we have we are we are almost done. I have I, I have uh, one letter that we're going to do this time before we go just because it's fun. And then we're going to save the rest of our letters for later. But I want I, this letter made me laugh out loud. So I want to share it with you right now, which is this Jason and Julia. This is from Dan. This is a fan letter. I don't have any questions or complaints. I enjoy listening to you two have a conversation. I listened to your first episode and wondered whether Julia would talk enough. <laughs> Turned out to not be a problem. Dan. <laughs> Drag me, Dan. Drag me. Uh, I, I just know needed to get I you out of your shell. That's all. I just needed to get you out of your shell. I know I talk a lot. I'm trying to be more aware. <laughs> it's great. Of it I love 2023. it. 2023. I love it. I, I mean, just behind the scenes, like this is this show is a lot like the show that I did with Tim Goodman in the sense it's like you should be on a podcast. I will do the compiling and set it up and make sure that we do it and make sure it gets edited. I would like you to come for an hour every couple of weeks and just open up your brain to the podcast and we got a podcast and so that's what this is and it works so so yes i i share dan's feelings that that it's not a problem well thank you for listening to me i appreciate it that's why they call me loudmouth julia that's why my that's, twitter handle it. it's good for podcasting this is a podcast you know uh, uh, like everything this is also a podcast okay if you have a question for us, and I swear I've got a lot of really good letters here, but we we went, you know, it's our first one in a month, so we, we had a lot to talk about, but I swear we will get a lot more letters in next time. I promise. I really promise. Uh, but we want more. Email us, downstream at relay.fm. If you're a Relay FM member, you can do question mark house downstream anywhere in the Discord, and that'll get to us. And we have a new feedback form. This is great. Relay.fm slash downstream slash feedback. And there's just a form Ooh. you can fill out. Uh, so if you don't have email, I guess you could do that too. Love to your mothers, whatever you do. Uh, and you can uh, find Julia at Loudmouth Julia, as she said, on Twitter, parrotanalytics.com, puck.news with her columns. You can find me at sixcolors.com. I'm also in the Relay FM members Discord, which is very nice. And uh, you can support us while you're doing that if you like. Uh, relay.fm slash downstream. And until next time, Julia. Say goodbye. Bye, guys. <laughs>